Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Joining us this week, actually in person in Concord, which is way cool, is Jason Newton, a visiting assistant professor of labor relations, law, and history at Cornell University. His research focuses on the history of capitalism, labor, and the environment in rural America. And specific to our podcast, Jason wrote an incredibly compelling article titled, These French Canadian of the Woods are Half-Wild Folk, Wilderness, Whiteness, and Work in North America, 1840 to 1955. So, Jason, thank you much for joining this French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this article. Well, first of all, the listeners of this podcast um, will know that something they hear frequently from me is that I often say that the topic we're about to discuss is something I was completely unaware of prior to the research for the interview. And that's absolutely the case. Uh, with this discussion here. I have to tell you, honestly, as I was reading it, I was kind of alternating back and forth between um, sometimes actually literally laughing out loud at some of the <laughs> conclusions that some of the historians uh, were, were reaching at the, you know, the 19, turn of the 1900s, uh, but also sometimes really, really mad because this had really, real significant impact uh, on the lives of French Canadians who, who were working in specifically the logging industry. So it's regardless, it is a wicked important article. I'm super glad you wrote it. Um, and what, first of all, just what your background, where are you from and how is it that you got to write about French Canadian loggers in rural New England and New York? Yeah, so my background's kind of similar to some of your other guests. So I've listened to most of the episodes, I think. So <laughs> I appreciate I, I, that. I would consider myself a fan. Thank you very um, much. And, uh, yeah, so I have um, French-Canadian ancestry. My great-grandparents on my mother's side moved from Quebec to the United States in the 1920s. Wow. But uh, unlike some of your other guests you know, relatives moved to urban areas, to mill towns. Uh, We were always told that uh, my great-grandparents worked in the logging industry in the Adirondacks, which is um, a a wilderness area in northern New York. For me, uh, my kind of, uh, the story of my family was always the story of uh, my relatives living and working in, in rural areas. Um, and then I wrote um, an undergraduate thesis on lumbering, kind of inspired by that dissertation. And then that's becoming a book now, um, which, you know, expands beyond the story of French Canadians in the lumber industry. But really the, the genesis of the whole project was kind of trying to figure out what it was like uh, living and working in rural areas. That's awesome. That's really cool. So did you grow up then? Because um, I didn't even realize you had the French-Canadian background. Uh, did you grow up surrounded by the French-Canadian cultural identity at all? Was this like, Did you have like a meme and a pepe? Did you eat yourself some pork pie? I mean, did you grow up in that that kind of environment? Yeah, so uh, definitely the pork pie was every <laughs> Christmas. Awesome. Um, so so my last name's Newton, like you said, but but my mother's last name is Delaire, and and you know Delaires and Deshanes were cool. were in my family, and and so really. 
um, that identity was more important to me than my father's side of the family, who for just uh, complicated reasons, we didn't know as much about his gotcha. his background. So I really identified as, as French Canadian. And, you know, that's what kind of I would tell people when they ask, you know, like, what what's your family background? Sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, my, my grandparents did kind of instill that. And, and, you know, we grew up Catholic. And I know yeah. that's been a big yeah, part absolutely. of the conversation. So, yeah, I would say I identify that's awesome. in that way. That's very cool. All right. So get into this article. You said I gotta. I'm putting it out there now uh, for the listeners who can't actually see the setup I have. Usually, I have a rule with for Mike so he doesn't have to edit it out. That I, I limit myself to three pages of notes because you could actually hear when I flip through them. Look, staring at five right now because I I could not help just writing a ton of stuff down because it was so crazy stuff I had never heard of before. So let's start right away with the title of your article. Where does this come from? French Canadian. I want to make sure I get the right because it's this is a quote. This is great. These French Canadian the woods are half of the woods, excuse me, are half-wild folk. Yeah, so that comes from a newspaper in the early 20th century from Tupper Lake, New York, which is actually where my my family migrated to. This was a newspaper article that was kind of informing the readers just about what these kind of strange people living in the woods, cutting lumber, what they were like. And it was not very flattering uh, sure. as, as, as the title of the article uh, shows, but it gets into a deeper history of how Americans used to think about uh, French Canadians uh, both as they lived in Canada and what they, how they lived in America, particularly when they settled in rural areas. Now, this is cool because something you touched upon before was what we talked about a lot on this podcast, mainly because it's a story I knew growing up, is the story of, you know, coming down from the farms, settling in mill towns, working in urban areas. So this is definitely new for me. Do you have any kind of idea what no- kind of numbers are we talking about as far as, you know, French Canadians that came in, worked in these logging camps, that kind of thing? Yeah, so without a doubt, most of the French Canadians – and I know there's there's kind of a dispute on the show whether French Canadians are Franco-American. <laughs> yeah. I, I always grew up with French Canadian. Me too. Um, That's why the title of the show. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll just keep using that. But mo- <laughs> like most it. of the French Canadians um, settled in middle, ta- middle towns because, truthfully, the, the wages were better. Uh, perhaps some of the living conditions were better. But there was a, a, a significant proportion that settled in rural areas right across the border and actually might stay on the American side temporarily and work and move back and forth because uh, the border was relatively unpoliced. It was fluid. You could move back and forth until later in the 20th century when, you know, it was uh, more heavily policed for several reasons. It's hard to tell kind of the the exact proportion that, that lived in rural areas cutting wood, lumbering was one of the professions in the Northeast that had the highest percentage of French Canadians. So I think it was bricklaying was number one, and then uh, woodcutting was number two. I think there was, at one point, um, early in the 20th century, 33% of New England woodcutters were French Canadian. A small number, but a high density of French Canadians working in this specific industry, which is one of the reasons that that kind of uh, it kind of inspired the article, thinking, why is why are they working in this industry? And I'm I'm assuming when we're the time period we're talking about, 
because um, it's not like today where, you know, if you if I want to work in Quebec, trust me, I've tried, I need a visa. If somebody there wants to come here, they need a visa. We're not, there's none of that in this period. You, anybody, like any business owner hanging out in Berlin could go out and find as many French Canadians as they wanted. Yeah, and until there was more restrictions placed on that in starting uh, around 1917. But gotcha. before then, and, and this was actually true for a lot of American immigration, regardless of the country, there was very little uh, rejection from for immigrants coming into the country. I mean, uh, up to uh, 1924 with this specific uh, Johnson-Reed Act, you know, if you were showing up to America, it was very likely you could get in. And specifically for Canadians, uh, it, it was very easy to cross the border. You didn't really have to work. I mean, the hard part might be actually kind of physically getting where you're going, sure. you know, t- uh, taking a train and then walking some distance right. or figuring out how you're going to get to where you want to go. Which makes sense. So how did then these businesses, because you hear about how, you know, the mill owners sent out recruiters to mm-hmm. places. Is that the same way they found people to do logging? Were there business owners who sent recruiters out into Quebec to be like, hey, why don't you come work for me? Yeah, so it depends on the time period we're talking about. So if you go earlier back to the middle uh, of the 19th century, so 1850s, 1840s, um, it, it would have been, um, you know, groups of French Canadians coming over with a French Canadian boss kind of contracting with a lumber company. But later, with the rise of, of large paper companies like Great Northern Paper in Maine and, and Brown in New Hampshire, there were recruiters gotcha. that were going to uh, different places in Quebec and and actively getting people to come to work in, in these camps. It, this was a seasonal work? Is yeah. So it was always done in the winter uh, up until wow. really the 1950s and 60s just because um, the way the logs were moved, they were it was easier to move these big heavy objects on snow and ice. So it was pretty gotcha. much seasonal. So that's... Uh, that sounds uh, terrifying actually. Yeah, well, it, it is. Uh, um, but most of these French Canadians were coming to the United States in the winter to work in the lumber industry. Um, and this is, you know, regardless of the time period, and then perhaps going back to Quebec to work on the farm. Gotcha. And that was similar to how, uh, you know, farmers in New England worked. Uh, they would work part time, part of the year in the woods and then return back to farming. So logging and farming was, was really connected regardless of it's Canadian or American. No, that's cool. And one thing I do want to make sure to mention, because I have a listener who's going to get on my case if I don't. He's descendant from a long line of rafters, which he stressed to me is different than logging. Do you, if you don't know, that's cool. We can edit this out completely. Do you have any idea what the difference between a rafting and logging inks? Because I do not. Well, so, I mean, if, if he's talking about, you know, uh, after the wood was cut, being brought to a waterway and actually attaching these huge rafts of log together and then moving them to a mill, that could be distinct from logging. Okay. Uh, sometimes the same people would do both. Gotcha. But there was also, you know, moving other goods on rafts, you know, so that and that, that ties into this because something, you know, that... that um, back in earlier in colonial times that French Canadians did was, uh, uh, you know, they were uh, fur traders and and moving things on canoes. 
So, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what he means by that. But <laughs> No, I think that's interesting because, I mean, you don't know, think about the fact that, yeah, they cut down the trees, but now we got to get them someplace. So, yeah. I guess make giant rafts. So. That sounds, I mean, in one thing, uh, not necessarily your article, but other things that you have sent me to read, which is awesome. This just sounds incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Like, absolutely insanely dangerous to be doing this work. Blogging is still very dangerous, but it was uh, even more dangerous when when people were using axes. There were no there was no OSHA. Sure, you know, it was particularly you know small camps uh, that really there was no regulation at all. It could be really dangerous. Okay, now let's get to the fun part of the article. What I found, which was that during this period, this this to me was completely nutty, crazy. Um, your work really focuses on the idea that French Canadians were legitimately thought to be like racially, like biologically suited to logging work. That because of their race, that they were suited, like experts thought they were suited to this work. First of all, who are these experts that are saying this? David Vermette talked a little bit about this on one of your episodes. Uh, you know, there were these racial science scientists that studied the race of different immigrants coming into the United States. And recently, more historians and historians have been talking about uh, racial management or how uh, different, uh, particularly anthropologists, sociologists, and historians to some extent in the 19th and early 20th century were trying to figure out how to place immigrants into work types of work where they were, their bodies could be used most efficiently. Yeah. And, you know, it, you need to understand that people really believed in this race science. I mean, it was taught in college, sure. right? Yeah. So to them, Which even is though, terrifying. yeah, yes. it, you know, these are, you know, uh, abhorrent, ridiculous concepts sure. today, but people really believe this. And so um, the, the really the main focus of, of this article is that, you know, some of the racial sciences, science that was written about French Canadian, because of their history in Canada and because of their lives in Canada, their religion, their type of farming, they were thought to be specifically suited for uh, harsh outdoor work. It, It goes back to colonial history, as I mentioned, where uh, the French Canadian were were thought to um, have this affinity with the natural world because one of their uh, uh, well a uh, well-known profession of, of early uh, French in in Canada was uh, being f- uh, fur trappers and going out into the kind of furthest sure. reaches yep. of of the colonies to to trap furs or to just trade different goods with Native American groups. And uh, this, you know, it's a very important part of Canadian history, I think. Uh, these were equivalent to kind of their front, you know, Americans think of frontiersmen and, and uh, you know, kind of conquering the, the West. And this was the equivalent in Canada, these uh, voyageurs or, or corps de bois. I'm not a French speaker no, either, so I'm trying the best I can. Uh, but so those were the names of some of these professions. And this information about the uh, French in Canada being well represented in those industries got communicated to Americans. Uh, And so Americans started to believe that French Canadians were kind of ideally suited for this very difficult work in kind of wilderness areas. One early example I give is Henry David Thoreau writing about this character in his book Walden uh, named Alec 
uh, Thoren, who, you know, Thoreau writes that this guy is basically like um, one with the forest and he's this super good wood chopper and kind of his physical build is very hardy. And uh, I kind of traced in the article the different things that Thoreau might have been reading to give him this impression. And, and a lot of it goes back to these different histories written about the trappers and fur traders in, in uh, uh, the, the frontiers of Canada. Sure. It's, it, going back to Thoreau's impression of this, of this French-Canadian he comes across, I actually wrote down in my notes a line that you have, you included in, in your article, which... Thoreau wrote, which is that a more simple and natural man, it would be hard to find. And of course, this was not meant as a compliment at all. <laughs> simple means, you know, incapable of deep thought. That was what we're talking about for simple. You bring up other pieces of literature. One of the things I will I'll point out now, um, when I was reading this, there were a ton of names I came across that I, I was surprised of how many people I recognized, you know, from my, from my history lessons who were discussing you know, this kind of, this issue, who, who bought into this issue of that race that could dictate what you should do for a living, that each ethnicity, well, they called it a race. Uh, the French were considered a race, French Canadians, uh, that your race uh, meant that you were suited for a specific job, which, again, was crazy. And a lot of it, uh, I guess I should bring back, um, is to the issue of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you touch upon, again, something you brought up David Rometz's book, that's something we talked about with him. The whole idea that to be white was to be almost like the pinnacle in that the French Canadians were something somehow below white. They weren't exactly white. They yeah. were something else, whatever that was. Yeah. Yeah. So in this earlier period, when we're talking about Thoreau and, and some other people like James Fenimore Cooper, Francis Parkman. So right, in exactly, that, yeah. the, the late 19th century, um, you know, it, it wasn't before the, the hard racial sciences were really developed. Uh, it wasn't as important for these early writers to um, kind of uh, uh, really get specific in terms of uh, what was causing these differences. It was just basically what one historian called like uh, literary national racism, basically meaning that they kind of read different books about French Canadians or maybe any other different ethnic or racial group, and that kind of formed people's impression of that group. So again, Thoreau is reading all these different histories. He's reading Longfellow. He's reading, you know, people that I mentioned, Cooper, uh, Parkman, and he's just forming his idea based on these different stories that are being told about French Canadians. And then by the late 19th century and really kind of uh, ramping up in the early 20th century, you get these these professionals, these anthropologists, sociologists sure. that are trying to make this into a science, that are trying to be very accurate about this, how French Canadians live and trying to make conclusions about what they're racially suited to do. Yeah, this is awesome. Um, you're right, because it's not just literature. I mean, I just mentioned, like, the science, anthropologists determining that this is the case. I wrote down a couple of things, specifically that's jumped out just on the literature side. Mm-hmm. Um, the Forest Life and Trees, John Springer's Foreign Life and Trees, French Canadians represented as demi-savages mm-hmm. with a propensity for woodwork. Uh, a name that jumped out to me, Alexis de Tocqueville. Mm-hmm. Somebody, obviously, most of the listeners, I think, would be familiar with. French Canadians were men of instinct who submit to life of the wild. You mentioned Longfellow. I mean, a ton of names uh, weighed in and bought into this entire deal, which is kind of crazy. Completely crazy. Yeah. And Parkman. I mean, 
I'll get my degree in history. Still read Parkman today. Every you still go to school. Yeah. And he's opining kind of the same thing. Parkman's thoughts were that the French became savages in early America. Hundreds of French settlers betook themselves to the forest never to return. That's yeah, cool. and I think, again, there's this idea, uh, I know this has been brought up on the show before, that French Canadians had this affinity with Native Americans right. or First Nations people that uh, British Americans and British Canadians didn't have. It's hard to really say that, that it wasn't completely true. I mean, a historian named Richard White wrote that, you know, there, there was this connection basically because fr- the, the type of work that French Canadians were doing, again, uh, 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 fur trading and trapping sure. in, in the western uh, uh, wilderness areas in of the sparsely settled areas in, in uh, America and Canada, they were working besides uh, indigenous people. Sure. Uh, they did form this connection, but, you know, it wasn't anything racialness. And, and there were French Canadian and indigenous people forming families, and that was certainly, you know, the, the case. But, but again, this, this wasn't kind of... Uh, it shouldn't have been thought of as kind of a racial feature, but it was. It was thought that the French Canadian were becoming more wild in their experiences working in Canada, in the Canadian wilderness and, and the American wilderness. Um, and, and uh, yeah, so Longfellow uh, is particularly important. Uh, Evangeline, the Tale of Acadie, uh, was this hugely popular poem sure. that kind of reinforces all the these ideas the uh, French in Canada kind of have this affinity with the landscape and and they're simple farmers and simple woodwork and people in America are reading this and that's what forms their opinion of the, the French Canadian particularly in rural areas yeah and and the way you present it is super interesting because you give this literary background uh, you know these are the stories told uh, through literature uh, about and historians or whatever about the, the French Canadians and how that informs the, the literally the scientists, mm-hmm. the anthropologists who come later, um, who themselves draw different, come to the same conclusion, but I guess coming from a different area, uh, from a different perspective, that biologically French Canadians are different. This is like a time, you know, not too long after Darwin mm-hmm. we're talking about. So um, they're looking all the way back. I saw, I remember one you pointed out too, went all the way back looking at the fact that, uh, these French Canadians were descendant from, you know, obviously the French of France who were, you know, nothing but Roman slaves. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. all of a sudden, therefore, obviously this is what they're destined for. Yeah. And, and it's, it is, in to me, the fact that that was an accepted, cool science. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt's a name you drop. Absolutely buys into this. Is ridiculous. It yeah. blew my absolute mind. Comment on that, but let me just go back to literature one. Sure, so, absolutely. So for the listeners, um, if you go back and, and read... Uh, Jack London's Call of the Wild, pay attention to um, uh, Francois and Perrault, these two kind of ancillary characters who exhibit some of the same features that, that, that I'm referring to. So it's just kind of this, this idea, these ideas of, of French Canadians being kind of having this affinity to the wilderness. It, it's just kind of in literature, not even kind of a major part necessarily, sure. but it's just in all these different right. books. And you're right. And then, you know, someone like Roosevelt, who reads um, a, a lot of outdoor fiction, sure. he's he's absorbing these ideas. So when, when the racial sciences became kind of something that was just commonly accepted 
everybody was absorbing that, you know, including people that were running logging businesses or, or even, you know, people running mills in, in urban areas. They were all absorbing these ideas about uh, what the different immigrants coming to the United States were good at because sure. of their race. And, and one of the things that you point to almost seemingly as a test like almost a whiteness test and going back to the use of the forest um, was what did this race, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes all over the place in this mm-hmm. discussion, what did this race do when they came upon a forest? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, did they live among the forest? Did they turn the forest into something that you could profit from financially? Because then I guess if you did, it made you more white or more likely to be white. Is that how it worked? Yeah, exactly. And so, um, again, and I agree, we're kind of using air quotes here, but but Native Americans were thought of as, quote unquote, savages. Right. Right. And so they and again, this is, you know, uh, horribly racist, but this was common belief at the time. Uh, So they were thought to kind of live with nature. Right. And that's part of the reason why they were thought of as as less than white or savage, because they were just another part of nature. Right. And so more civilized people didn't coexist with nature, but brought civilization to nature. And and that was by cutting down the forest, building a farm, building cities. Right. So this became a kind of scale of savage to civilized. Right. And so, uh, of course, you know, these, the people writing these texts believed or, or, or were actually descended from Anglo-Saxons. Sure. And so they were always, uh, you know, they read history and, and thought that, you know, whenever Anglo-Saxons or even Teutonic or Germanic people came upon wild land, they didn't just kind of coexist with it, but they would, you know, civilize it. They would chop down the trees. They would start farming and they would eventually build grand civilization like the American civilization, right? Other racial thinkers, uh, these racial sciences, were trying to place all different immigrant groups on this scale from savage to civilized. And as the the newspaper article that in the title of my article shows, the French Canadian were thought of as half wild, right? Half savage, half civilized. So when they encountered forest land, they started this civilization process but never really were able to get to the place that Anglo-Saxons were able to get to. And this is, you can see this in people writing about French Canadian agriculture. Sure. It was always this kind of inferior agriculture. French Canadians were peasant habitants, not kind of free yeoman farmers, right? So their their agriculture was always kind of less advanced. Sure. And their economy was not as robust as the American economy. And it, this was all based on these notions uh, of, of race, these, these ideas. So they're on the racial scale, somewhere between the Native American savage and the true ideal white guy, French Canadians fell somewhere in between yeah. on that scale. And, and I also want to clarify that because this is all completely bunk science, right? Yes. There was a lot of disagreement, right? There was yeah. no consensus. Cool. What's important for legitimate science is that professionals reach a consensus. Sure. And when you read these primary sources, you see that these uh, these so-called racist racial science scientists are not reaching consensus. But many people argued that yeah, it's the French Canadian sure. fell in that in between area, or what other historians have called kind of partially white. Now, in you talking that there was almost like a the three characteristics 
uh, that a racial, like a three boxes kind of a uh, racial group needed to check uh, when it came to civiliz- civilizing land. Excuse me, you got to be bodily able, which is one. You got to have familiarity with the forest land, which is two. And three, be self directing. And you suggest that one of those is significantly more important than the other two. Yeah, so this um, uh, comes from a lot of different people writing about. Um, race and and uh, the environment uh, and and you know specifically Frederick Jackson Turner who's who's writing a lot about Americans' conquest of the West. He and others, uh, you know, in in different ways, point out these different characteristics that are necessary to bring land to civilization, to be in that civilization point, right? Not not savage, but civilized. Last one, this individualism that allowed somebody to go out in the woods and kind of with very little aid kind of make a wild piece of land into a civilized piece of land. That was what made Anglo-Saxons unique or, or Americans who, who were descended from Anglo-Saxons unique. And there was a lot of other racial groups who were bodily ab- able, who had a, a familiarity kind of ancestrally with forest land, but having all these things, including that very important individualism, w- made made a group kind of worthy of uh, being considered civilized or being able to civilize wild land. And one of the things you talk about is more than one writer opines that the Catholic Church actually has a role in this individualism and whether or not they can they can check that third box. Anti-Catholic sentiment is always around when when these writers are writing about French Canadians and it was assumed that um, most French Canadians just followed the direction of the clergy, right? They, sure. they just um, yeah, that's... <laughs> and th- this was true of of mill workers right. too. It was Absolutely. thought that that f- the French Canadian couldn't be uh, citizens and most Catholics couldn't be ideal citizens because they would just listen to the will of the clergy and they wouldn't actually form their own opinions. And so similarly, it was thought that, you know, when French Canadians w- were going to work on the land, they were really good at it. Going back to Alex Thorin in, in Walden, right, he was really good at working, but he would never be able to think enough independently to kind of make the land very valuable to to kind of start a very successful farm or run a very successful lumbering company. Uh, uh, he but he was a very good wilderness worker. Yeah, you know, bodily and his familiarity with working in forest land was was all there. But you know, if they didn't have uh, a boss or or a priest or some member of the clergy directing him, then he was doomed to failure. And again, you know, the, uh, I want to emphasize this is completely wrong, sure, but this course. is what Americans were thinking. Right. And first of all, I, I want to mention here that that where I got the whole descended from Roman slaves thing, I believe it was an Edward Gibbon, which I think is kind of nutty because again, another another giant name yeah. that anybody who's ever taken a history class in college is going to be familiar with. But again, buying into this insanity. Um, but what you just uh, alluded to is actually something um, where I made the transition, honestly, when reading your article from being semi-amused, literally laughing on my computer reading it, uh, to getting legitimately mad when it was pretty clear that this thought process of, yeah, these French and Indians are really good workers, but biologically not capable of actually being a boss or making mm-hmm. decisions had real impact on the lives of these loggers who showed up here. Yeah, in, in a number of ways that was true. 
when when they were hired on, they were very desirable for a company like uh, the Brown Lumber Company in Berlin, New Hampshire, you know, hired a lot of French Canadians. Uh, But they were always put in kind of the harshest conditions, the deepest wilderness kind of made to live in the worst conditions because that was thought to be suitable to their race or suitable to where they came from and lived. You know, that that was fine for French Canadians because of their racial history of of working and living in, in places like that. You know, not even specific to French Canadians, but with a lot of different immigrant workers, you see um, companies setting wages lower sure. for for different immigrant groups and also pitting different immigrant groups against each other in order or uh, uh, American workers and immigrant workers against each other um, so that they can't form kind of solidarity to kind of demand more from their bosses. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a number of, of ways they were treated poorly. And, and you know, they were also, uh, I found one case of uh, dispute between a, a lumber boss and a French Canadian worker where the lumber boss, it was over food and sure. then the boss shot the, the French Canadian worker. It's pretty clear that they were subjected to really harsh discipline in camps if, if their boss sure. wasn't French-Canadian. And you mentioned, getting into the, the early 1900s, you mentioned you, you highlighted a 1907 law in Maine, which you note made, quote, virtual slaves of the laboring class. What was this law about? And how did it do that? Yeah, so uh, this wasn't specific to French Canadians, but this was. But French Canadians were disproportionately impacted by this because they made up such a large part sure. of the workforce. Um, and this was a law that basically said if you got caught going into a lumber camp and maybe buying some tools, buying some clothes, and then you found out that the wages were, weren't what you were promised or the conditions in camp were were really deplorable, really uh, kind of harsh, you know, uh, no no good bedding, not a good food, and you decide you're going to quit and you had accrued a little bit of debt, um, you could be uh, tried for that and sent back to the lumber camp to work off that debt plus your court fees. So you got into a situation where uh, workers were isolated, forced to accept sure. cer- certain conditions in a small amount of debt, afraid to leave, and when they, if they did leave, sent back to continue to work. And so there was um, a labor advocate who were stu- was studying this condition in Maine, and uh, you know he thought that that it really created a situation where French Canadian workers and other workers were coer- directly coerced to continue to work under you know really bad conditions. Absolutely, I mean you have no recourse at that point. Yeah, what are you yeah. going to do? And this was you know for immigrant workers, uh, French Canadian workers who might not speak very good English sure. or be able to read, and you know have literally come across contracts signed with exes, you know, even even in uh, the 19 aughts and 19 teens, they were being told perhaps falsely that they were going to work in this really great camp, you know, and it wasn't going to be that far away from a town and the wages were higher than the other camps and the food was great. Um, And then when they got there, uh, they were isolated in the woods. They'd kind of bought some of their tools, bought some winter clothing, and then they just had to keep working. They were stuck there. Yeah. Now, what is the French-Canadian jumping disease? When you read this, there's there's two different ways that jumping was used. One of them was a, a condition that um, a, an early uh, 
psychologist named uh, Charles Beard actually studied where it seemed like it was a almost like a post-traumatic stress disorder gotcha. where these these French Canadians were easily starred and this was specific to lumber camps it was, okay. it, was it was very odd uh, uh, they were very easily startled and supposedly if you kind of gave them a, startled them and like gave them a command to do work they would just automatically obey you um, and so this is people have been written a lot about this jumping disease and and they argued that perhaps it was a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder caused by the heart Harsh discipline in these camps. It's still kind of a mystery exactly what the deal was with this. But modern psychologists writing about it say it sounds a lot like these symptoms sound a lot like they could be post-traumatic stress disorder. But significant enough that multiple people were noticing this and noting yeah. it, writing about it. Yeah, this is a really odd but interesting event that that. Uh, probably deserves more research. And th- so another another way you hear about jumping is uh, jumping the border. Sure. So it, it, sometimes it would get confusing when I was reading this, but but they would talk about French Canadians uh, jumping, uh, meaning that they would, to escape the laws that, that you just mentioned sure. in Maine, they would just try to get across the border really quickly. This idea that you could make a lot of money in the United States, jump across the border and spend, you know, you're not spending that money in the United States. Gotcha. And one of the things that, I mean, again, terrifying, a lot was terrifying about about when I was reading the article, was the end date. You end dated in the 1950s. Yeah. So, I mean, this is still going on, you know, within my folks' lifetime, which is crazy. This idea that the French Canadian were uniquely suited to working in the woods um, started off, you know, as, as part of literature, moved to part of the racial sciences. By the 1930s, we really see, you know, partially 1930s and 40s, partially because of the, the atrocities of the Holocaust, we see people really dismissing the racial sciences or trying to dismiss the racial sciences and moving to other types of of disciplines like ethnographic studies as opposed to trying to say that that you can study race scientifically. But this legacy lives on well past that. It lives on primarily in this uh, bonded labor system. Something I talk about uh, in the beginning and then I return to it again at the end of the article, um, that's this unique government-sponsored guest worker program um, that allowed American companies to go across the border, tracked French-Canadian workers to work in the United States, and they would be bonded to specific American lumber companies, which meant that the company paid a cash bond for each worker. And if they didn't return the worker back across the border, the, the company would forfeit that cash bond. And from the worker's perspective, he had to stay, he or she had to stay with that company. Just was, it, yeah, yeah. And when we're talking about lumber work, it was primarily men. So uh, he would have to stay with, with that company. Um, and so I can go, that actually kind of has a longer history that, sure. that I can. Go so again, we know that the border was relatively fluid and, and in terms of uh, French Canadians working for lumber companies, it was pretty much, you know, cross the border in the winter. If you can find work, maybe you're kind of drawn by a labor agent, maybe not. Maybe you're working for a French Canadian crew who's just working in America temporarily. Uh, but 1917, um, there, there's a, a, a law passed that requires an $8 head tax on any worker coming across the border. So this is when we start to see the border. Like a federal law then? 
Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Immigration uh, Immigration Act. Uh, so so you had to pay an eight dollar head tax, but that really allowed you. And perhaps you could see situations where the worker would pay that, but more likely a company would pay right. it on the worker's behalf. Sure. And then the worker could actually move back and forth across the border with no repercussions. That amount changes. There's a ten dollar uh, fee imposed on top of that eight dollar fee in 1924. So it gets a little more expensive. And, and what's the motive behind these, by the way? So this is basically typically American woods workers saying, you know, these Canadians are coming over gotcha. and working for cheap. Sure. So we need to limit the supply gotcha. of French Canadian workers. And, and again, this is a, around this time in America more generally where cracking, uh, the country's cracking down on immigration, putting more restrictions on immigration, partially because, you know, some of these racial sciences uh, are, are getting to government officials and they're saying, you know, we can't have these different races uh, uh, coming into the United States in these large numbers. Um, so... This idea of having a head tax becomes more formal during World War II when there's a shortage of labor in the United States because a lot of American lumberers are going overseas to fight. So there's a more formal system that puts a quota on the number of French Canadians that can come over to work in the woods. We see the federal government in charge of this program, setting the quota through the uh, War Manpower Commission um, and, and really making sure during World War II, the government's really hands-on on the economy. They want the lumber, sure. particularly paper, to continue being produced. So they want to make sure there's enough labor. Similarly, as we saw with people complaining about the head tax, Yankee New England lumberers are complaining that these uh, Canadians are coming over, lowering wages. So there's always kind of a contention over what this quota should be. Sure. You know, if you flood uh, the woods with uh, French Canadian workers, you're, you're kicking out uh, Yankee workers. Lumber companies want more French Canadian workers because supposedly they'll, they'll work for lower wages. They might be more suited for the work. It's so crazy. That was, you know... More things change, the more they stay the same. Themes are still here today, just not applied to to other groups, not French Canadians. Yeah, so this system becomes very similar to another another kind of guest worker system that's happening on the southern border called the Bracero Program. And so if your listeners aren't familiar, this was basically the same idea, but with Mexican agricultural workers on the southern border. Absolutely. And this uh, this bonded labor program is is much, it's not as well known as Bracero. I mean, Bracero program, I learned about it in high school. You learn about it in college if you take a lot of history classes. The bonded labor program, though a few people have written about it, is just not as well known. But this idea that there were a quota of French Canadian workers who came to work in a specific industry, very similar to the Bracero program. The bonded labor system continues, and similar with the Bracero program, the bonded labor program continues into the 50s kind of gets regulated more in the 60s, we still have French Canadians coming under H-2 visas into the 70s, 80s, and and we have uh, New England workers protesting these bonded workers coming in up up until... uh, 2003, 2004. So, so nice. this this system, uh, you know, has this important 
legacy. Sure. Uh, and there was this antagonism between French Canadian lumber workers and New England lumber workers, you know, uh, until very recently because of this long legacy of, of how people thought about French Canadian workers and how lumber companies and the government treated French Canadian workers. Which I think is, is crazy. But it's a super fascinating way, I think, to end because the whole idea is that this is not ancient history. This, this is very recent. That this was still very real. Um, has still had this this whole idea of the way French Canadian lumber wor- uh, workers were viewed. Still had very real impact on people's lives. People that we would know. People that we would have grown up with. So it's it's absolutely wild. This article. This is awesome. Thank you so much for for joining with us. Now, if somebody wants to read your work, how do they get it? Uh, yeah. So you can find me um, Twitter at uh, Jason underscore L underscore Newton. I post, you know, uh, uh, some of my work. You can find links to my work there. Um, you can find links to that article if you kind of click through. Um, you can find links to uh, my other work on the lumber industry because it kind of extends beyond the, the French Canadians. Uh, I talk a lot about logging in, in New England in this same time period, many different aspects of it. Um, ideally, the, the book um, titled The Rise of, of Industrial Capitalism in the Northern Forest will be published um, in the next year or so. <laughs> okay, I was going to um, ask, where can we expect that? The, the timeline's a little shaky, but hopefully in the next year or two with the University of Chicago, but none of that's set in stone. And this, the, the French-Canadian research will be part of awesome. that book. All right, when that comes out, we will definitely hype it on all our social media. Thank you so much for joining us. Like I said, story I had no idea about. I mean, grew up my entire life surrounded by French Canadians and French Canadian cultural identity and had never, ever, ever heard any of this. It absolutely blew my mind. It was wild. Please, if you have any interest in the kind of stuff we talk about the French Canadian Legacy Podcast, check out this article because it is crazy. Jason, thank you so much for joining us, sir. Yeah, thank you. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode. This program is recorded at the Conquer TV podcasting studio. The views and opinions expressed during this podcast are not necessarily those of Conquer TV. The producer is solely responsible for its content.